Hello and welcome to episode three, part two of the Trusted Tech Talks Serverless Podcast with me, Lloyd Lawson, and my guest speakers from InfinityWorks, Callum Dixon, Adrian Heskiff, and Ben Foster. Today we will be continuing on from the previous episode discussing a variety of key topics surrounding serverless technology. So, okay, so we've been talking a bit about serverless and we've mostly focused around, I guess, web APIs and uh, web applications, right? But that's yeah. not the extent of serverless, is it? And mm. I think, you know, a lot of customers uh, are using it for data processing pipelines and for dealing with vast vast quantities of streaming data. So what, what might be sometimes, or what AWS calls clickstream analytics. Um, so I think, um, you know, we're working with some pretty big retailers who are pushing a lot of their click data about, you know, what customers are hovering over, what customers are, are doing on the site. And are, are typically processing that with AWS Lambda and SQS queues and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a huge amount of flat file processing as well, you know, daily dumps and those kind of things. So I guess those those are, I guess, also serverless applications. Yeah, I guess I've, I've, I've not... Is that what you do? Is that what you're doing? I've not been, I've not been lucky enough to work with the the real-time streaming aspect of serverless data. I think the, the instances I've looked at have been more, I guess, more ETL, more traditional batch. So it's been uh, it's been glue jobs, uh, perhaps using Athena for interrogation of data in S3. And so I guess that, that side of the ecosystem, which still still is a, still got a lot of very useful functionality. Um, but um, yeah, I don't have as much experience of the exciting real-time stuff yet. It's pretty new, isn't it? It's only is it is it a year, two years old now? It must. It's got to be around that period, hasn't it? It's only a couple of years old, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I, I think I, I. I certainly picked it up for the first time maybe two years ago. I'm not sure how long it had uh, been in existence prior to that, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely become a, a useful tool in terms of just okay, well, I've got data on S3 and I want to immediately pretend it's a database. And uh, being able to work with that in, in a kind of similar vein as I've got this code and I want it to run somewhere with as little uh, required lead time as possible. So I guess in, in, in a sense that is That's very it. much still serverless. I think five, five years ago, I, I started building a project, in, a serverless project. And um, the choice, I, I know it was, it was three years ago, and I chose to use a relational database over DynamoDB because I wasn't comfortable that I could query, get the get the data out and query it in, in enough forms. And I think um, there's many reasons why that was. I mean, ultimately, I wasn't completely convinced about what the data model would be and uh, you know what the right structure would be, and and I was a bit frightened about at the time, mostly due to my I guess inexperience with DynamoDB, but also due to the feature sets. You know, but now this ability to be able to say, well, actually, I'll just hook up DynamoDB streams push that through a Kinesis Firehose, let it land in S3, and then I can query it using Snowflake or Athena. It's just all of those kind of issues that led me to sort of sticking with what I knew around relational databases have kind of just evaporated because I can still create those relational reports um, and, and sort of get data from disparate microservices in a way that I couldn't, you know, for three or four years ago. And I think it's been interesting how, you know, serverless isn't just you know, isn't just Lambda, is it? it is the whole ecosystem that, that you bring to bear on, on it. 
Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of encouraging you from using good architectural patterns as well, such as breaking up your operational and your, your analytical data stores too. It's, it's just by by the nature of using things like DynamoDB Stream, just encouraging you to do that a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I guess I mean, that's, that's almost... Sorry, go on, Adrian. Go, go for it. I guess, I guess that's kind of similar to the the cost of ownership discussion, right? Because there's uh, if you're just paying for the data crunching, then why not have one system do your transactional data crunching and another half do your analytical and just choose the right tool for the job and, and pay for what you use there rather than say, okay, we've paid for these SQL server licenses, so we're going to use it for everything because we're not paying for another tool on top of that. So it all yeah. ties in. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point. When you when you when when you've got a large cost of trying something new, then it makes you stick with what you've got because you don't want to try something new because, well, what's the point? Because you you know you can't afford it for just that tiny single use case. But in, when you've got this kind of pay-as-you-go model, you're able to sort of experiment a lot a lot more fluidly because the cost of trying something out is much much lower than than it was. Now now it's your developer time. You know how much time do you want to invest? And I think. I guess that's part of the problem now, isn't it? Is you know you've now got, I think what AWS has 150 services. Last few years they've they've public published, haven't they? They're saying you know, hey, we've done 2,000 releases this year of new functionality or services, and that's I think we're year three of that now. So if you think about it, that's 6,000 accumulated changes in the last three years of services. Um, when I think about how much the serverless landscape shifted, um, Amplify was is new, right? Um, the you know you've got the GraphQL services, um, you've got um, Athena like we were just talking about, mm. huge number of changes to to Lambda itself, the new API gateway, um, Event Bridge is 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 new, um, and you know a lot of changes in the observability space there around how X-ray works and uh, things like CloudWatch Log Insights is new, um, so a huge huge number of new services along the way. Um, which I guess makes it difficult to understand for, for newcomers, where should I focus my attention? So it's definitely a breadth say? rather than a depth to, to Ben's point about RabbitMQ and all the, all the complexities in terms of mastering that system versus having the breadth to know just enough about each part of the Amazon ecosystem to know what the right tool for, for your current use case is. And also the, the conceptual issues on top of that so more of the architectural concerns of how to actually build out these systems i guess that, that that becomes much more part of the engineer's domain but they don't have to go quite as deep into the the low level of each individual component so um you, you said earlier you were dealing with uh, sftp so are you running your <laughs> sftp server with your customer there so we are actually using um our, we are currently exploring sftp uh through AWS Transfer Family, I think there's a they're, they're, they're using both currently right now because there's a there's a big cost to moving various third parties over to the new the new landing zone. But for for new incoming files, we're exploring using Transfer Family, and and it is fantastic because I mean your data is immediately just in S3, and you can continue in a serverless manner from there on. So it, it, it's a very typical enterprise use case, very effectively interfaced into uh, into a serverless architecture so it shows just how close to the edge you can you can take these things yeah i think is that 200 dollars a month or thereabouts for, for the transfer product 
something like that. Not nothing, nothing huge. I've, uh, it wasn't me that set it up for the first time, so I didn't, it was uh, it was a it was a made decision by the time I came onto the picture. So I mean, I, I was I, I I just introduced it into into a client recently because we had a client that um, that couldn't integrate with anything other than SFTP for various reasons. So like with a heavy heart, we're like, okay, we're going to have mm. to introduce. SFTP server just for you, <laughs> and uh, and I was like two hundred dollars a month though, just just because you can't run a run a script. It just saddened it saddened me a little bit. I, I will say, I had to do something similar for a client a couple of years ago before the likes of AWS transfer and everything else was on the scene, and we ended up using a SFTP server that ran in EC2 but backed off with S3 storage. And we used some kind of um, proprietary file system driver that wrote everything direct to S3. Which basically built transfer family. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> but it then meant that we got all the advantages of using S3, so the availability and the redundancy, but then we could also drive events off of it as well and trigger various uh, actions. That sounds, uh, that sounds like a, a good product, but it's been ruined now. Now no one will ever <laughs> use it, right? So, I mean... <laughs> Surely that's a, you know, as an independent software vendor, then what, what's the what's the hope now? Uh, is it uh, you know, the, do you remember the, the the years where you know you'd be you could think about founding a software company and 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 earning the big bucks? Um, do you think AWS will just eat your lunch now as soon as as soon as you get enough market share? They'll just create something that's just good enough uh, to to not need your product. Mm. It's definitely something on a micro level that I've experienced as an internal software engineer is, is spending a good bit of time on a component, very nearly getting it live or just getting it live. And then Amazon just releases what you've built as a service and you've has a very heavy heart. You just throw out your code because there's no point in maintaining it anymore. And you move to Amazon's thing. So, well, that was a nice exercise in futility. But at the same time, it is better moving forward for maintainability. So it's, uh, it's very bittersweet. I can only imagine that amplified tenfold if it's your business that's in question, not just your last I mean, sprint's work. Amazon, Amazon is sort of addicted to the big release, aren't they? They're, 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 they love a big showy release at reInvent, right? They, they, mm. you know, the reInvent's coming up next month and, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of uh, releases. But, you know, now everything's under NDA. No one's allowed to know anything about it. But like you say, that sort of micro, like macro level kind of thing is happening right now where there's people all over the place trying to sort of build things that just kind of do a thing. And Amazon is just about to release something that, that does it. I think there's a really strong argument mm. for just not doing anything, isn't there? Like now, if you, see, <laughs> if you see a problem with an Amazon service, you know, you should probably just wait for it to be fixed. Like, you know, I, I, when I saw the Lambda timeout, you know, the Lambda 10 seconds, stuff, mm. I was like, well, Eventually, it'll get fixed, right? And uh, I think there was a similar one around. Um, you never used to be able to tune the TLS parameters for the for API gateway, so you had had a pretty permissive set of um, of, of TLS certificates. And I was like, you know what? I can't be bothered to create. I I, I wrote the code to create a CloudFront distribution, and, and 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 I just thought, you know what? There's no point. I'll just wait. And you know what? Sure <laughs> enough, six months later, Amazon released a change that allows you to sort of tweak the parameters and, and away I went, you know, and that's it. I was like, thank goodness I never bothered wasting my time on that stuff. Um, so yeah, maybe there's a, maybe there's a good argument now for, yeah, not doing, not doing unnecessary work, uh, but guessing, guessing how big of a problem it's going to be and working it out with Amazon. That, yeah, that's going to be difficult because they don't publish roadmaps, do they? It's, they're not that kind of company. 
think it's an interesting balance though, like you mentioned, Adrian. It's that it's that sweet spot between AWS building something which is just good enough and whether or not that can pull kind of um, um, markets, well, people away from the other markets in which they've already got products in. So a good example of that that springs to mind is um, AppDynamics as a monitoring platform. I've worked with a number of clients that use it and they utilize it quite extensively because they they specialize in the in that area. They, it is an application performance management tool and you know, it, it does a really good job of all of that. And then AWS come along with their cloud watches and their x-rays and they try and steal a bit of market share from them. But because they don't necessarily specialize or they don't specialize yet in that area, I think AppDynamics still has quite a big stronghold there. But there is there, there does seem to be some demonstration of AWS wanting to collaborate more with with vendors like that. So the the Lambda extensions tooling that's come out now has pretty much opened the door for App Dynamics and New Relic and people like that to integrate a lot deeper with um, AWS Lambda. One of the challenges that we had previously was if it doesn't run in App Dynamics, I ain't interested in it. Whether or not it's going to save me thousands of dollars and allow me to be more agile and in, in you know deliver value earlier. If it doesn't work with my monitoring platform, I ain't interested. Whereas these days now, with the likes of that the Lambda extensions functionality, it's um, yeah, it's opening doors. I think I saw a really great demo of um, of an observability tool called Fundra with a th. I can't pronounce TH, so it's going to be fun dress for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's my, my Lancastrian upbringing. But um, like uh, I, I, I saw that being able to step through uh, a past execution of a Lambda function in a debugger window. And I thought, wow, that's the first time I've seen um, something like that. And, you know, I think I think that's the that's the future, I think, of what we're going to see inside Lambda, um, you know. AWS has been making some interesting hires in the observability space. You know, I think X-Ray was a, a, a bit of a step forward, I think. And, uh, you know, CloudWatch is, is pretty good. Uh, yeah, to see what happens next will be really interesting. But, um, yeah, like, do you, have, we, have we got a reduced window of opportunity as, uh, you know, with all these tools? Like, you know, I can't imagine, for, for me, like, for instance, CloudWatch and X-Ray are, are, are plenty enough, plenty for me. I mean, I'm not really that interested in line of code performance. You know, if I really need to see that, I'll just whip out a profiler locally and do, or run a benchmark into into my unit tests and, and sort of understand what's going on there. Like, you know, inside my process, you know, it's just CPU. You know, it's, it's going to be pretty obvious where my CPU is being wasted, you know, and network hops are observed anyway. So I'm not really sure what the, you know, how much better it has to be in order for, for me to be useful. But I guess, you know, do you use a debugger day-to-day? -day? I, I don't really. Uh, I just so much. So I can't. As I say, I did, I, did a, I did in my last role, but I think that was, there was quite a lot more emphasis on the code, the kind of proprietary algorithms that we were running inside our lambdas rather than necessarily a complicated architecture. And maybe that's because we weren't cloud native enough. But I found myself debugging, as you say, debugging the, the Node.js code locally, the Python code locally quite a lot. But definitely in, in the products I'm working on just now, it's very much more reasoning about the cloud infrastructure. And so the debugging is, uh, the, the Lambda code itself is a lot more, a lot more trivial in, in many cases. So yes and no. Yeah, I, I, I did think see my... Oh, sorry, go on, Adrian. 
I did see a developer write some code and then they wrote it on the computer, pushed it into the lander, and it was timing out. And they're like, why why is it timing out? And like their their computer was like an absolutely top spec Dell XPS, you know, with all every like all of the additions, maximum memory, everything. And you know, you're like, well, the single threaded performance of a Lambda isn't as good as your computer. And then you look at your code and you're like, yeah, I can see why that's taking a long time in Lambda. It take take a long time anywhere except your computer because your computer's so awesome. Um, but yeah, it's a is that a problem necessarily? I mean, I don't know. I think there's paradigms for people to be aware of is one of them, for example, is the, the performance that you're going to get from running your code in Lambda is not necessarily the one you're going to get on your high power developer machine. And we've all got these high spec Dell XPSs, MacBooks, whatever, because previously we were writing applications that were going to sit on some really beefy tin because coming back to our, you know, our ownership and our costing models, that's how we previously deployed stuff. It's always been on you know, this, this single beefy server, whether that's SQL server or something else, whereas these days, it's not so much the case. We're, we're looking more horizontally scalability than we are vertically. So that's a consideration, I think. Having said that, I only bought a new laptop this year because um, because I needed to use Microsoft Teams with a client and uh, I needed the extra CPU just to run Teams. I was quite happy with the <laughs> A dedicated core. <laughs> Did it, honestly, I had, a, I had a 2015 MacBook Pro 13 inch one it was perfect no problems at all but trying to run teams and anything else at the same time just an absolute disaster so yeah uh covid has cost me a new computer so <laughs> shame good i mean there's a question that's i've done i well not on the previous podcasts and events that i've done um and uh, it's kind of thrown out there at the moment but how does serverless impact the sort of devops environment the kind of way of working i think it definitely oh. opens the sorry go on Adrian. Go, go ahead we're all too polite here aren't we <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult when you're not in person you can't you don't have the subtle yeah. cues as to i'm going to speak now everyone's just yeah yeah another challenge of covid um <laughs> So I think it definitely serverless in that it lowers the barrier to entry for infrastructural concerns, makes the idea of being a full stack team far more achievable. Where previously, if it, you needed to have development teams and operations teams because the, the breadth of the work required is, is too great. But now if you, if you are working in a fully serverless stack, then it's very much possible to have a handful of engineers or, or even one engineer that owns a product from inception through to production including the the maintenance the monitoring being on call for that product uh and, and getting the the benefits in terms of autonomy and agility and ownership of that product that you get from having that full stack responsibility and then it's a question of well do you have a devops team or is devops just a discipline that you include in your teams and maybe you have smes or centers of excellence for that, that that set standards or best practices for your organization but ultimately the devops is work that's done as part of the engineering work of each vertically aligned team i think that's that's often the pattern that is most effective for organizations in terms of velocity of, of delivery and and, and and empowership empowership that's not a word empowerment <laughs> i think i think what i've seen is um 
a difficulty around um, the security boundaries and the responsibility mm. in, in, in that way. So when you know the the serverless tools like like serverless framework, for instance, sort of indulge you into this kind of you know serverless create, serverless deploy. Uh, you know, and it kind of assumes you've got full admin rights to create anything you want inside the the AWS infrastructure. And then when you come to try and do a CI/CD deployment of that. Um, you know, the easiest thing for you to do is to create a super user account, basically chuck that into your CI platform, I, you know, GitHub Actions or CircleCI or whatever. And basically you've just given CircleCI full full administrative full, full administrative privileges over your infrastructure, including in some cases your production environment. And, um, you know, that can be a problem because, you know, tools like CircleCI also allow you to SSH and just get a shell access and just basically be able to do whatever mm. you want inside that AWS infrastructure. And, um, you know, I, I would say it's not easy to, to, to solve that. So I think uh, in some cases, what we've done there is done things like, you know, made the CI platform responsible for delivering a binary and then mm. using uh, using tools like uh, code build to, to do the, the infrastructure inside the AWS world. And, and that, that goes some way to, to resolving it. But at the same time, you've still opened this gap because you can commit any code you like as a software engineer into the into the Git repository. And, you know, when you've got these kind of automated pipelines, it's just flowing straight through. So unless you've got some of the controls in place around, um, you know, having having review before merges to master take place, and uh, and then also having like secondary checks on things like uh, additional IAM roles. So it's very easy, for instance, to open up permissions much wider than, than, than perhaps you expected. So, I mean, and I think things like uh, permission boundaries and so on have, have sort of recently been introduced or in the last few years which kind of make that make that possible but it requires some pretty in-depth knowledge of, of how AWS infrastructure works in order to be able to sort of achieve those those security improvements so I think there's a long way to go in 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 any kind of AWS environment really around making that easier to to achieve but I think it's it's more pronounced I think in the in the serverless world because almost every change that you're making results in an infrastructure change you know, you're 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 running every every function generally needs some access to another AWS service, which involves making an AWS IAM role, which means you know you've got some permission to create roles, which is a kind of traditional or very easy to exploit. Um, you know, uh, what's it called privilege escalation vector. So it's uh, it's di it's difficult difficult I think to 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 really secure that stuff. Well, um, it takes takes some experience there I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And they're both patterns that I've kind of grappled with recently. I think we were doing something very similar in terms of having the CI part of CI/CD handled by the, the source control vendor and then the CD by code pipeline, which, yeah, it, you are splitting responsibility and you have to learn two different sets of tooling in terms of how to, to build these pipelines. And it makes it like, it's quite an awkward thing to explain to the dev team why you've done it like this. Why don't we just do this all over here or all over here? kind of splitting that yeah I, that's right i mean i i'm a big fan of github actions and circle ci i think they're both brilliant tools that i really enjoy using you know they're, they're sort of they're a pleasure to use in comparison to uh, code build and, and so on mm. uh, so I, I, I and you also you buy into an ecosystem you're buying into the team's experience and what they've they've got to use github actions there's all sorts of really cool stuff there like um you know like OWASP. Uh, attack vector uh, attack proxies and things like that you can just use to to test your code in different ways that are a little bit more difficult to achieve on if you go over to the AWS side so it's more about sort of benefiting from that ecosystem um, so I think 
But at the same time, as soon as you're talking about AWS credentials that basically have administrative access over your infrastructure, you you don't want to have you don't want to hand that over. Uh, you know, you want to keep that as close as you can to the AWS infrastructure. So I think it, it does make sense to use S3 as a sort of conduit for for for, track, for, for pushing builds over. But you mm. you know, you're still you're still giving a lot of trust out to the to the engineering team, though. You are. And I, I have a, I have. Sorry, Ben. So I was just going to say, I think one of the challenges that there is around all of that is that we're now kind of empowering these development teams to take ownership of so much more. It's not just building the applications and building code anymore. It's taking ownership of the infrastructure, looking after security, looking at your CICD pipelines and how your considerations are around that. There's, there's a journey that I think teams need to be brought along in terms of getting them from potentially where they are now, whether that's enterprise applications development or anything like that to this kind of full-fledged DevOps mindset where they are empowered to do anything and everything. Some people just don't want to go there. It's like, well, I've spent my whole life being a Java developer. Why do I suddenly now need to worry about my infrastructure and you know how this stuff's going to scale elastically and what managed services I'm going to use and what they're, you know, what the constraints are around all of that. So the, there's definitely some challenges around that, I think. Hearts and minds battle. Is that a bit Absolutely. like, uh, do, you remember, do you remember when unit testing became uh, became a thing and suddenly you're asking people oh, yeah. to write unit testing and they go, I'm not a tester. Yeah. Like as if, as, <laughs> as if writing the unit test was, was beneath them somehow. GDD, uh, it, I just want to write code. Yeah. Um, is, is it not the same battle again? There are, is it the same arguments? I think there's a lot of overlap in there. And I think it's around this embracing DevOps culture and getting an understanding of what DevOps means to people. Um, as we mentioned earlier, in some capacities, that's a team, um, which I think is um, opposite of the intention of DevOps culture. But yeah, it's it's kind of, it's, it's not, getting people to think of it as more ownership well more responsibility and more accountability and you know they're they're on the line for making sure all of this stuff works it's selling people the dream of being empowered and giving that agency to kind of build whatever they want however they want it and making sure that that's that's the message that's communicated with people it's that we are we are bestowing upon you this ability to build the right thing in the right way as opposed to being confined, you know, by historical traits of, yeah, you chuck all your code across the wall and someone else will take care of it for you. I mean, that, that's a huge inference on a, on, a, on a management shift, isn't it? I mean, because what, what we've really seen over the last, or, or certainly what I've seen over the last five years, is a, is a huge shift away from, I guess, traditional IT type led development. So you could kind of typify it from, when, when I first started in the industry, it was very much big specification documents uh, broken down, and my job as a developer was to implement the specification as a, as laid out by the uh, by the architecture uh, and the business analysis team. And so my job is to go through that, tick it all off, and then pass it over to the tester who would validate it against the same specification that I'd seen. And um, and you know that was okay. And then we we sort of started doing things like Scrum, which was really kind of, or, or kind of I guess back in those days, spiral development through the Microsoft RAB and all this kind of stuff. And, but they were all kind of shortening the cycles, but it was very much kind of 
business requirements led, you know, uh, and this idea of IT and the business. And I think what we've what we start to see is the shift into digital teams, where we're starting to think about, um, you know, teams are not part of IT. That you know, development is not part of IT anymore, is it? It's generally part of a digital team that that looks after customer acquisition channels or, or particular elements of a of a customer journey and so on. And I think what we've done there is. Now the team are wholly responsible for a customer journey or for a customer acquisition channel or for a, or in some cases a business process, if you like, but it's not, but, but the team's responsible for it and they're a long-standing team. It's not, um, you know, your job isn't to be a, a developer anymore, is it? Your job is to look after a, a business process or, 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 or try or achieve a business outcome. It's a, it's a different uh, task, I think, than it used to be. And I think that, that's a good thing. Hmm. But it's, it it's a massive, a whole... it's a yeah. It requires a whole shift in, in almost funding models, though, because you're not working in projects anymore that are just sent to a team for execution and then they're done and then there's a new project. It's, it's got to be, a long, as you say, a long-standing team with, with perhaps an annual budget whose only metric is that they continue to maintain and deliver on and improve this, this part of the domain that's their responsibility. And that requires a a release of more fine-grained control at some of the executive level where you're not signing off on the individual deliverables to the same extent as you maybe are in, in, a, in a traditional setup. So, so you're saying that there's no transfer into support like there perhaps used to be, right? You might well, do a software release, too. Look, look after something for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, the hypercare period or whatever you want to call it, uh, and then you do a handover into, into the support engineers and then they have to look after it for the rest of its life. And uh, that, that was always a pretty fraught process. Um, mm. you know, who would want to be a maintenance programmer? A very thankless task. Well, that, that, that handover as well, I've always found spawned a great deal of, of bureaucracy and, and perhaps not, not necessarily unnecessary documentation, but perhaps... Uh, process built out of uh, out of out of concern for past incidents that maybe is not that valuable so perhaps there was a there was a, a piece of knowledge missed in a release three years ago that now means you have to fill out this extra bit of form every time a ticket goes from build into support and this kind of builds up and builds up and there's this uh, reluctance to unpack any of that and suddenly when you've got one team or one group and running it end to end there's there's no need for that transfer and you can keep the documentation that's actually valuable to the running of the product. Makes sense. I remember um, I remember working at a team once and we had a sort of CI CD pipeline set up before it was fashionable. That's right. I was a developer hipster. And uh, we were we were a, a new IT manager came along and he was like, hey um, Whoa, we're not having developers releasing things to production. That's that's not going to happen. Not not in my watch. And so he, he made us make insta installation packages for for all of our software, so that the so that the IT folks could could run the installer and then run the uninstaller to do the migration processes. You know, but there was something like uh, twenty installers that they had to run <laughs> on a release date. So it went from being a completely automatic process to being okay. You now have to run these 20 installers in exactly the right order and make sure you do all these backups and all these other things. Needless to say, it lasted two releases. And then he's like, uh, okay, <laughs> let's uh, let's go back to what you were doing before. <laughs> Biggest waste of a couple of months uh, ever. Right? And it's the fact that the people running those installers have no context as to how 
that software was built. So they're just kind of trusting that those instructions. And if something does go wrong, then they're, they're really not in a good place to work out how. So it's... You, have to, you have to run a main installer at that point. And just, hope that <laughs> just back it out. <laughs> do, we think, um, do we think Lambda and all of the new AWS managed services and everything else, do we, do we think that they can be supported by a business model which still encourages the, the notions of like support teams and project-based teams as opposed to well, so we uh, can actually, uh, I think in, I think in some respects, like um, having a managed service lends itself better to that model because you've got much less to go wrong and much less to look after. The, the you know the maintenance tasks are, are, are vastly reduced, so you know you, you're able to, if if you like, hand over much more because. What are you really handing over? You, you know, you, you're saying actually AWS is responsible for all of that, and you're responsible for this code that runs in in this, you know, when these events happen. Uh, monitor this with your CloudWatch dashboards that we built for you, and you know what else is there to to look after? You know, if it breaks, well, you know, hopefully the you know the lambdas will retry a few times, and you know you've got some dead letter queues and stuff like that. But it, you know, there should be it should be a reduced conversation really. So thinking from a, I guess, a Lambda specific perspective, if we've got, say, functionality that's now being broken down into composable functions, which is typically, I don't know, um, five or 10 times more than the amount of microservices that a support team would previously have to manage. Do we think that that is something that could be supported by a team that isn't necessarily as close to the code as the product team would be? If they now had hundred or two hundred lambdas, as opposed to a couple of you know ten to twenty I mean, microservices, I think as soon as as soon as you put a transpiler onto JavaScript code, or as soon as you use a compiler on your on your other code, you're so far away, aren't you? From at that point, you know you're basically having to look at the code if you want to see what's going on. And hasn't that always been the case, really? You know, what what, what options do you really have if if the performance sucks? then ultimately you're going to end up looking at log entries or you're going to end up looking at uh, other other insights that you've got. And if you've got nothing, you're going to go back to what we've always done, which is adding console.log into your code so you can see what's going on. <laughs> nice. We've covered quite, quite a lot of the topics, really, haven't we, uh, from what we've discussed today. Um, I mean, we've delved quite quite a bit into this more the security side as well, haven't we? Um, do you, want, do you want to maybe go into that a bit further or um, do you think we've covered most of it on that side? Yeah, I guess um, uh, at, a, at a pharmacy, I was uh, did a lot of work on, on having security audits done there because we're dealing with such a large quantity of, of healthcare data um, about patients. And uh, as you can imagine that, you know, it was the first cloud project to the first thing we'd ever launched into, into uh, any cloud service. So there's a huge amount of, of, of nervousness around, um, around, you know, what are these folks doing? Is this safe? Is this sane, what they're doing? You know, they're about to pull this information uh, into the cloud. And, um, you know, the, what we did find was that the security teams and the people we talked to were set up for um, a different world than, than what we were in. So they were asking things like, you know, uh, how do you patch the operating system? Well, you know, and you know, we don't. And how do you SSH into the into the machines? How do you do remote administration? And the answer is we don't. Uh, you know, 
how do you check the patch levels? Well, we don't, we run these automated tools on our build processes, which tell us when our libraries are out of date and we actually get automated pull requests and, uh, and they, they update our dependencies for us when, when it's time. And, um, you know, it took us a long, a lot of explanation around, you know, what the serverless model was and how it worked. But um, ultimately it gave everybody a lot of confidence in, in, in the design because, if you start to look at things like API Gateway and you say, well, you know, we're not just, we've not just picked something off the shelf. We've, we're using API Gateway as the entry point to all, our, all of our HTTP traffic. And you say, well, you know, how do you make sure that it's secure? Well, it doesn't even support an encrypted connections by default. Um, AWS look after the TLS certificates for us. We don't handle the private key material. They choose the encryption parameters based on their, their understanding of best practice. So as long as, if you think that I can choose encryption parameters, better than AWS, then sure, hand me the responsibility to choose the right kind of, you know, I don't know what the right kind of curve is for, for elliptic curve cryptography right now, to be honest with you, I'm not that into it. I'm not sure, I can't, I'm, I'm a bit fuzzy on how many bits equals, you know, different types of encryption algorithms, you know, based around around that stuff. Um, so, you know, I'd much rather hand that over to AWS and spend some time researching that stuff um, in, into the depths that I'd really need to do. And then you go a bit deeper and you go, well, okay, in a typical website, you would have a HTTP load balancer and it would hand off to the web server. Um, so, you, you know, but here we've got API Gateway. It's already doing layer seven load balancing. We've already had DDoS protection from AWS. We've already had rate limiting from AWS. We're, they've already checked that our HTTP requests are valid. Uh, they've, they've introduced 30 second timeouts. They've done a whole lot of the work for us. And then there's an encrypted connection between the load balancer and our web uh, and our lambda, which we would have had to do ourselves. So we've we've saved ourselves yet more work. And then you know you've got these kind of hard timeouts and and which reduce the impossibility of dwell time. And the more you look into it, the more you go, you know, this really makes uh, a, a lot of sense from just the security's perspective. You know, the, the number of questions that it answers for you um, is really strong. And I think if you can avoid a VPC, then you know having a, a network. Then you then you solve a whole bunch of other questions around well how are your firewalls configured uh, well actually we don't run any firewalls because we don't have a network oh you don't have a network um, where does this stuff run well it runs inside AWS and we don't really have to worry about um, about that so much and um, you know and things like the AWS IAM um, the identity and access management it's really good like uh, that kind of granular control you know we don't have any static credentials anywhere we don't have any passwords hard coded. Like, you know, there's no connection strings, you know, even if you're using things like relational databases with Secrets Manager, you can get it to get, get up to automatically rotate the credentials for you. We're in a really great position from, from a security point of view. So our, our main risks now are misconfiguration and, uh, uh, and automated exploits, you know, and which are looking for those misconfigurations. So now it's about, you know, automating as many of these kind of tools as possible uh, along the path. Uh, and I think, that's where um, that's where I'm spending, I guess, uh, uh, more of my efforts is making sure that the basics are in place from the from the landing zone point of view, and then making sure that the the automated analysis is in place and, and that the responses to issues are, are really solid. But yeah, like always, developers, you know, they they're the ones writing the code. You, there's only so far you can go. Look at the OWASP yeah, 10, it's not shifted much in the last 10 years, has it? You know, it's not like it's a new bunch of threats. It's the same old stuff we've been dealing with for a long time. So there's still a lot of work to do there, perhaps. Nice. Anyone else to add to that on the security side or? 
I guess the Barry didn't. Uh, I think Adrian pretty much covered it, but I think one one interesting bit is that the the surface area, even if you even if you take away whether you or Amazon is hardening the assets that your code is running on or or the the API interface itself. If you've got a lambda that's that's so ephemeral, it spins up, runs the code, and then is gone. There's nothing really to exploit. There's nothing to load malicious code onto that isn't going to vanish when your execution is complete. So it, it, it's just another dimension in which the the surface area for attack has been greatly reduced. Yeah, that's right. So if you exploit a web server and you're able to get something running, then mm. it's sat there running for hours potentially, right? Like uh, spinning around around for days. Um, doing more and more damage on, on quite a powerful piece of machinery. Um, I guess the, the risk now is, uh, you know, if you've if you configured your Lambda function with excessive privileges and it's able to leverage that to do more. So it's really about kind of keeping tight control on those on those policies, keeping an, keeping an eye on that. But I mean, our organizations at that level, I don't, I don't think a lot of them are right. A lot of in a lot mm. of organizations that we're still seeing people just doing a yearly pen test you know it's like you know a yearly pen test in a world where uh, we're releasing several times a day is isn't really working for us as it is as, as a group mm -hmm. and then you know these days you know places like github and aws ip address space is being scammed constantly by attackers just constantly um with automated attacks that are that are up to date the hardening has to be at a at a process level. It can't be a, a it can't be sort of something that you do manually later on. It's about sort of reducing the risks in your process. Mm. Okay, yeah. I mean, we've covered quite a lot there. Uh, I think we've been on for well over uh, nearly hour and twenty now. So I guess we've covered we've covered quite a lot in terms of. Uh, uh, serverless. I know we could go even further, couldn't we? Really, in terms of uh, serverless, because it's so much to talk about. Uh, but I guess is anything else from you guys that which you want to kind of bring up, which you've not necessarily covered so far? Our sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you know that you can hire us to do a well-architected review of your serverless infrastructure uh, of your serverless architecture? So. Um, We'll, we'll come. We we as a we're uh, Infinity Works are AWS partners, and we can do uh, well well architected reviews for people who are using AWS to build serverless apps, and um, we'll do that for free for for organisations. Uh, in fact, AWS will even uh, potentially give you up to five thousand dollars of service credits for us to do follow on work uh, to to help you improve the architecture of your systems. And that's something that AWS offer uh, as part of the partnership deal. So you can actually get some of our time for free if you're interested in serverless or if you're interested in adopting serverless, you know, quite happy to talk to people and uh, have a chat with them about what their designs are and uh, and give some input there for you through that program. Nice. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I guess uh, that's, that's all this week for the uh, Trusted Tech Talk Serverless podcast. Uh, obviously, thanks for your time, Adrian, Callum, uh, and Ben today uh, for sharing, obviously, your experience and knowledge uh, with working over Infinity Works. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for sort of listening in as well. So, yeah, we'll be back soon with some more sort of insights into the world of serverless. So if you have any uh, topics uh, you'd like to hear about, feel free to get in touch with myself uh, or Trusted Tech Talks on LinkedIn. Uh, or feel free to drop me a message as well. Until then, take care and keep your eye out for the next episode.